Was she a good girl gone bad, as some news reports would have you believe, or was she a naive, love-struck woman taken advantage of by an older man? Whichever it was, the story you're about to hear involves murder, suicide, and a sensational news frenzy in Chicago and beyond, not unlike ones in present day. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Today we're discussing Wanda Stopa and how a once-promising future went horribly wrong. We'll also discuss one of Stopa's favorite neighborhoods in Chicago in her 20s. You may be surprised to know what the area was like then compared to what it is now. Due to the subject matter, parental guidance is suggested. Wanda Elaine Stopa was born in Warsaw, Poland on May 5, 1900. She came from a cultured Polish family, her mother, the daughter of an aristocrat, her father a well-known and respected sculptor. The family emigrated to America when Wanda and her two brothers, Henry and Walter, were children, settling in what was then the Little Poland area of Chicago. Most who knew Wanda recalled she was a smart, sweet, and happy child who excelled at school. She later proved herself to be a brilliant and focused law student studying at John Marshall in Chicago's Loop. In 1920, Stopa's family took an extended trip back to Warsaw. As Stopa was still in school, she stayed behind in Chicago and, without parental supervision, decided to explore the city and discovered Chicago's bohemian arts community, one full of musicians, painters, writers, and other free spirits. One member of this arts community was Carl Sandberg, who would go on to receive three Pulitzer Prizes and, just a few years before, in 1914, wrote the poem Chicago, which includes the opening lines, Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and nation's freight handler, stormy, husky brawling, city of the big shoulders. To this day, one of Chicago's many nicknames is City of the Big Shoulders. Also in this bohemian arts crowd was a young writer named Ernest Hemingway, who grew up just west of the city in the suburb of Oak Park and had returned to Chicago area after being wounded in World War I. This arts area, called Tower Town, was referred to as such due to its proximity to the Water Tower, a historic landmark and one of the few buildings to survive the Chicago Fire of 1871. The Water Tower still exists today on Michigan Avenue, off Chicago Avenue, on Chicago's Magnificent Mile. Tower Town began to develop after the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 when Lambert and Anna Tree developed Tree Studios as a way to entice artists to stay in the area, although Tower Town didn't really start to take root as an artist community supporting the bohemian lifestyle until around 1910, with a much larger surge around World War I. With cheap housing and former stables easily converted into studios, artists were able to easily set up workspaces. Inexpensive cafeterias, bookstores, coffee houses, tea rooms, and second-hand stores that popped up gave the artists in the area those essentials, and there were still enough well-to-do residents still living nearby in the Gold Coast area to whom art could be sold. A news clipping from the June 5, 1921 Chicago Tribune reads, Law grads, two pretty girls who will be graduated this afternoon from John Marshall School. There are pictures of the uh, two grads unsmiling, followed by the caption, The John Marshall Law School will have its commencement exercises this afternoon. Two of the members of the large class of graduates are girls, Miss Anna S. Papenguth and Miss Wanda Stopa. According to the August 18, 1921 Standard Union newspaper out of Brooklyn, New York, Wanda Stopa, now living at 1103 North Dearborn Street, 
claimed the distinction of being the youngest attorney in Illinois after being admitted to the bar. She was 21 years old. Although it is unclear exactly when during this time, Stopa met a man claiming to be Count Vladimir Glaskov, a Russian nobleman displaced by the Bolshevik Revolution. In reality, he was Ted Glasgow, a bigamist, likely a bootlegger who made up a fanciful backstory to woo naive girls. They married in Crown Point, Indiana after a week's courtship. Within weeks, he left Wanda and skipped town. At a party in the spring of 1922, Wanda Stopa met Yeremia Kenley Smith, 13 or so years her senior. There are discrepancies regarding his birth year. He was an advertising man with an office in the Wrigley Building and plenty of disposable income. He didn't really belong in the art scene of Bohemian Chicago, but is said to have liked the color and its freedom and was friends with Ernest Hemingway, which gave Smith access to that world. Hemingway even lived for a time with Mr. and Mrs. Kenley in a spare room at their place in the city. Why Kenley Smith, he went by the initial, was also said to like to, quote, assist young talent, end quote. He told Stumpy he admired her brain, saying to her, quote, you ought to be a writer, end quote. Allegedly, Smith disclosed to Wanda he had a wife, Mrs. Viva Daly Smith, whose friends called her doodles, a musician. An alleged affair between Wanda and Kenley Smith began soon after. Wanda was also under the impression that Mrs. Smith was in love with a Chicago musician in Germany, and once the man from Germany returned to the U.S., the Smiths would divorce so that Mrs. Smith could marry the other man and Wanda could divorce her estranged husband and marry Y. Kenley Smith. Whether Smith led Stopa to believe this was a possibility or this was a fantasy concocted by Stopa is unclear. Tired of waiting for Smith to come around, Stopa abruptly broke things off and went to Detroit to be with her estranged husband, Ted Glasgow, in February of 1923. By April of 1923, Kenley Smith went to Detroit to bring Stopa back. Later, when asked why her husband would do this, Mrs. Smith said the purpose was to take Wanda away from, quote, that man, end quote, meaning Glasgow, quote, I know he went down there, she said. I knew my husband was helping her, and I agreed to that. It had always been my policy to let him do as he thought best, because I had confidence in him. In need of a place to stay, Wanda rented an apartment from the Smiths that was not in use. More on that later. With her feelings toward Y. Kenley getting stronger, Stopa decided to force the issue by going to see Y. Kenley and his wife at an apartment they owned at 19 East Ohio Street in Chicago. As reported some years later in the January 12, 1947 Chicago Tribune, Mrs. Smith, who had a stenographic memory, recounted the conversation as such. Wanda, I want you to divorce your husband and let him marry me. Mrs. Smith. Does my husband want a divorce? Wanda. Yes. Mrs. Smith. Does he love you? Wanda. No, but I can make him love me. Mrs. Smith. I want him to do what he wants to do. Does he want to divorce me? Wanda. Yes. Mrs. Smith. To her husband. Do you want to divorce me? Smith. Yes. Mrs. Smith. Do you want to marry her? Smith. No. Despite all this, Smith continued to help Wanda, talking to her about life, philosophy, how to improve her writing, and even suggested books for her to read. 
As her intentions became more focused on Smith, all the while he claimed he was not interested in her romantically, he suggested she spend time out east in New York City, more specifically in Greenwich Village, where she could meet writers and publishers. Smith would even support her, sending her $150 a month, that's about $2,250 in today's money, to cover her expenses. Stopa moved out east and made friends, friends who called her Elaine, her middle name, which they felt sounded more sophisticated. She enrolled in a journalism course at New York University. She was hired as a lawyer and took another job helping compile a legal textbook. She spurned any advances from any potential suitors in New York, her thoughts only with Y. Kenley Smith. Stopa submitted six short stories to publishers, all with a pronounced sex angle, all rejected, and with each rejection letter, she became more despondent, longing for Smith. According to the excellent book The Girls of Murder City by Douglas Perry, Stopa wrote Smith many letters from New York. One encouraged Smith to finally leave his wife, and when he did, quote, Once a week I will go to your little house, put it in order, bring your laundry, which I will have sent, look over your clothes and mend as may be necessary, and replace them in their proper drawers. At no time during the week, except on Saturday, when I will change your linen and clean house for you, will I intrude on you. I promise, however, to hold myself in readiness to come to you whenever you may wish me, outside of working hours. You may have me when you want me. At first, Smith wrote back often. In one letter, he wrote, I looked in the shop windows today for something you would like, but didn't see anything. One hat was possible, but how could I confirm it without the little Polish bean to check up by? Polka, I hope you have been a little easier these last few days. I pray that I may yet be the springboard from which you dive into the lake of song, laughter, and happiness. Gradually, Y. Kenley Smith's letters became less frequent, feeling Smith's attention toward her waning, Wanda sent the Smiths a box of poisoned candy, which they did not eat. One night at a drunken party in New York in April of 1924, Stopa stepped into a room filled with guests and announced, Tomorrow I'm leaving here for Chicago, and when I arrive I'm going to kill a woman, perhaps a man. The party stopped for a moment, then the inebriated crowd burst into laughter. Later that night she placed a long-distance phone call to Chicago. When Y. Kenley Smith answered, Stopa said, I'm coming to see you for a final showdown. He hung up on her. At about 7 a.m. on Thursday, April 24, 1924, Wanda Stopa stepped off a train at the Illinois Central Depot near 12th Street in Chicago, her first time back in four months. Wearing a blue suit, a light scarf, and a dark hat, carrying only a shoulder bag, she flagged down a cab driven by Ernest T. Woods. After some haggling, he agreed to drive her to Palis Park, a southwest suburb, for $4 per hour. After nearly 20 miles of driving, the car turned down a single-lane road. The cab stop near post office asked directions to the home of the Y. Kenley Smiths, and an elderly woman pointed down the street, saying, 89th Avenue and 123rd Street. As the car drove off, the women went next door to the post office to let Henry Manning, the Smith's 68-year-old live-in handyman, know company was on the way. Manning, perhaps sensing something was amiss, left in a hurry to get back to the cottage. At 8.30 a.m., the car arrived at the house, which was set back from the street in an area cut into the woods. Wanda Stopa told the driver to turn the car around and be ready to leave as she had a train to catch. 
She handed him a $10 bill. Wanda walked up the driveway, knocked on the door, and when the maid answered, politely asked to see Mrs. Smith. When the maid said Mrs. Smith was not at home, Stopa pushed past her and found Mrs. Smith in bed, recovering from the flu. Manning, the handyman, walked in moments later and tried to calm Stopa down. With tears forming in her eyes, Stopa screamed at Mrs. Smith, Are you going to leave your husband? Of course not, was the reply. How am I going to live? Stopa wailed. Who is going to take care of me? Mrs. Smith responded sternly, You're a lawyer. Why don't you go to work? Drawing a thirty-eight revolver from her shoulder bag, Stopa aimed it toward the bed. Although Henry Manning was standing between Stopa and Mrs. Smith, Stopa fired the gun. Henry Manning's body hit the floor. Vieva Smith bounded toward the open window. Two more gunshots rang out, both missing their mark. Smith ran into the yard away from the house. Stopa looked for her, but couldn't find her. She shouted, I'll get you yet, and I'm going downtown now to get your husband. Wanda walked calmly back to the waiting cab. The driver, Ernest Woods, later claimed he was partially deaf and did not hear the shots. He drove her back to the city and dropped her off just shy of the train station. The news from Palos Park spread quickly over radio stations. Uniformed and plainclothes police flooded Tower Town looking for the Bohemian girl who killed an old man and the car that took her to Palos Park. Early assumptions were that the driver of the car was Vladimir Ted Glasgow. Papers claimed a special guard was sent to the advertising agency where Y. Kenley Smith worked in case she showed. Less than an hour after the shooting, Y. Kenley Smith walked into the state's attorney's office in the loop to ask for protection. He had been at a dentist appointment when his wife called to tell him what happened and to warn him. When questioned, Smith told prosecutors, quote, That woman has been after me for two years. She was disillusioned about my physical attractions. She wanted me to divorce my wife and marry her, and I refused. I was her warm friend, end quote. As the questions continued, Smith admitted he and his wife had rented their apartment in the city to Wanda, and that even after Wanda had moved in, he would sometimes sleep at the apartment on nights where he worked late at the office. But... This is a quote, he insisted. It was all very platonic, end quote. He even offered to draw a diagram to show the prosecutors the living room that separated his room from Wanda's studio. Mm -hmm. Newspapers across the country latched onto the story. The Pomona Progress Bulletin out of Pomona, California, reported the story that same day on April 24th and included the line, quote, Smith is handsome and about 40 years of age. Franklin, Pennsylvania's The News Herald referred to Stopa as a, quote, pretty young lawyer and referred to Smith as, quote, handsome and successful and quoted him as telling police the friendship was, quote, purely intellectual, end quote. Police searched everywhere they could think Wanda might have gone without luck. What no one knew was that Wanda Stopa took a train to Detroit, Michigan, where she checked into room 1156 at the Hotel Statler under the name Mrs. Theodore Glasgow of New York. By early Friday, April 25th, with her face all over the newspapers, Stopa was spotted by a salesman from Indianapolis who saw her in the lobby of the hotel sending a letter addressed to Mrs. Inez Stopa, Harriet Stopa, Wanda's mother. Inside the envelope was about $100 in cash, a Polish government bond, and a $200 insurance policy made out to Harriet Stopa. The letter, written in Polish, simply read, Matka, droga, matka. Mother, dear mother. 
in Wanda's handwriting. By the time the Indianapolis man had alerted the hotel staff, who in turn called police, Stopa had gone up to her room. Drinking water with a crystal of cyanide, she called the house physician at 1.30 p.m. and quietly said, I'm not feeling well. She was still alive when the hotel authorities burst into the room. With a smile, she collapsed on the bed and died. Wanda Elaine Stopa was one week shy of her 24th birthday. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune on April 28, 1924, written by Maureen Watkins, Stopa's body returned by train on Sunday, April 27th, but due to some confusion, there was no one there to retrieve it. Reporters waiting by pooled their money together to have a wagon driver deliver it to the family home on Augusta. At the house, Wanda's brother Henry, an architect in the office of the sanitary department, and Walter, who was with the Board of Education, consoled their now-widowed mother, who was distraught at finding out the Catholic Church refused service and there would be no priest. My poor little girl, my poor little girl, Wanda's mother sobbed over and over. She wanted to spare us the agony of a long trial, the disgrace of a sentence, and perhaps years of suffering, Mrs. Stopa murmured. When she realized what she had done, that she committed murder, when she came to her senses, the family blamed Ted Glasgow, the bigamist who lied about being a count, and even blamed morphine, which Wanda had admitted to using for her crime. Note, the writer of the last article, Maureen Watkins, covered the legal beat in the Tribune in Chicago in the 1920s. She went on to become a playwright and even penned screenplays, the most famous being Chicago, also based on a woman who kills her boyfriend, which became a 2002 film with Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Richard Gere. With the coffin containing Wanda Stopa back at the family home, neighborhood people started coming by to pay their respects. Friends of Wanda's parents, her childhood friends, her brother's work associates, and the like. But then gradually the crowds began to swell. Mrs. Stopa thought at first Wanda knew a lot of people that her family had never met, but then it became apparent that the newspaper coverage of all these sordid details brought out the thrill seekers eager to get a glimpse of the quote, brainiest murderess. The crowd in the street was said to have numbered 10,000. The pictures of that crowd on that small street trying to get into a three-story home to see the coffin containing a woman they didn't know are both amazing and horrifying. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper, police had to be called in on the night of Monday, April 28, 1924, to drive away the crowds of, quote, curious thousands impatient to stare at the coffined figure of Wanda Stopa. End quote. The family was able to get a Baptist minister, Reverend John Friedrich, to come to the house to conduct a brief service in Polish on Tuesday, April 29th. Six of Wanda's childhood friends served as pallbearers, but as they brought the coffin down the stairs, the door opened to yet another day's scene of chaos. Police corralled onlookers so the family could reach the hearse. At the Bohemian National Cemetery on Chicago's northwest side, Edward T. Lee, dean of the John Marshall Law School and Wanda's mentor before all the sad events occurred, offered some final words. He said he had come to testify, quote, to her lovely character, her brilliant mind, her eager pursuit of her studies, her lofty and noble ambition. The dean described the murder as a, quote, great misfortune, end quote, but that Wanda was now relieved of the burden of what she had done. Quote, 
The law has been fulfilled. It cannot follow the dead. The moral guilt is beyond our power to judge. Christ only could speak on such occasion, and he would say, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. Tower Town, as a bohemian enclave, started to fade away around the Great Depression. In May of 1969, the Chicago Water Tower, the focal point of the by then long-changed Tower Town and the lifestyle of which Wanda Stopa was so enamored, was selected by the American Water Works Association to be the first American water landmark. That area is now part of the Magnificent Mile, full of upscale stores, restaurants, a children's hospital, and somewhat fittingly, the Museum of Contemporary Art. I'll be posting pictures, ads, and stories that didn't make the cut on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Although this story was a little darker than the ones I've done so far, I hope you've enjoyed it. Please let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed. Also, if you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Next week... Just in time for Father's Day, we will take a look at the history leading up to the release of a favorite film of mine and many Chicagoans that is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, The Blues Brothers. Thanks as always to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art. J-K-S on Instagram or via email at jschneider152 at gmail.com As always, like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans. Get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening.